my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. As an angler, I'm obviously interested in fish populations and consider it very important that stocks are protected for the benefit of us all. So to some extent, I can see where the Icelandic authorities were coming from between the 1950s and 1970s, when, as a nation with few terrestrial resources, they saw a need to protect what they deemed as being their only natural resource, which in this case happened to be fish. But equally, I can also appreciate the stance taken at the time by the British fishing industry, backed by both the British government and the Royal Navy, in continuing to fish what at that time was not internationally recognised as being Icelandic territorial waters. What I do find difficult to take on board is how two previously friendly nations can reach the point of a military standoff with all the potential risks that entails over what amounts to little more than a very big shoal of cod. But maybe that's too simplistic a way of looking at things. Nevertheless, the navies of Britain and Iceland did actually square up to each other and both the rights as well as the lives of British commercial fishermen were put at risk in what would ultimately escalate into a full-blown international incident with implications for strategic NATO bases at the time when the Cold War as well as the Cod War were at their height. With me here is Les Hall who was personally involved in some of the infamous skirmishes with the Icelandic gunboats Thor and Odin in the final rounds of the conflict. But before we get up into Icelandic waters Perhaps you could fill us in on a bit of the detail regarding your personal role in all of this. When you left school in my day, I was only 14 years of age. You either worked on the docks, on the trawlers, ICI, railway company. There was loads of work. I left school on the Thursday and got a job on the Saturday in a motorbike shop because I like motorbikes. Nick Lancaster's on Poulton Road in Fleetwood. I got a job there, but I didn't stick there. I ended up going to sea because that's what most lads did in them days you know it was a hard job and everything else and I liked it at times but my mother wanted me ashore so I ended up packing the sea up at 16 and getting a, an apprenticeship on the docks so I, I served my apprenticeship on the docks to uh, Fleetwood trawler owners as a, an apprentice boiler maker all ships had boilers so all ships needed boilermakers. There was plenty of work, you know, we never had to work overtime, God knows what. But eventually, the boilermaker side of it, what I'd picked to do, come to a bit of an end because steam was going out and diesel was coming in. So there's all, the, all the steam trawlers were being scrapped gradually and uh, the diesel trawlers was coming in. So I thought to myself, well... It's the diesel trawlers that's put me out of work, so I'll go and join them. So I, I did do. I went and got myself a greaser's job, and uh, that's where I ended up doing 22 years. I ended up as a chief engineer on the first freezer trawler in Fleetwood. I wasn't a regular chief on that, I just do because that ship had three chiefs, because nobody knew anything about freezing in Fleetwood. And I went for three brand new vessels with the same skipper. I got with a skipper called Victor Buschini. And I was with him for 19, 18 years, I think it was, something like that. And we went for three brand new ships. We went for the, the first Armana. And then we went for the Moretta. And then we went for the Casilla. And I was chief engineer. Quite happy doing that job. I was really happy until 
the Cod Wars came along and made the job awkward. They made the job virtually impossible at the end. Had they started using stern trawlers by that stage, or were they still using the old Sidewinder design? The first one was Armana, the Manumars, keep the names but change the bolts, if you will. So the, the Armana I went for was the first one I went for with Victor, and she was a real modern type crawler, built at Ghoul on the East Coast, and she was a modern diesel trawler. I think she was about 500 tonnes or something like that, and she was quite a fast boat. All mod cons, after the steam trawlers where you didn't have proper washing facilities or you didn't have this, that and the other. In these you had showers and chief engineers had their own cabin with their own toilet and shower. No, really modern boats. They were a pleasure to sail in after the others, really. But still a hard life nonetheless once you reached Icelandic waters. No matter how big a boat or how good a boat, when you get in a force 10 gale, it's the people that are handling the boat that make it a good boat. Not that you can get a good boat, sea boat, and you've got a skipper that's not much cop. That's when they get accidents and things like that. With me being an engineer, I used to go on the bridge sometimes and I used to see these waves coming at us and I used to think, ooh, I don't think I could do the job up here. Let me get below where I can't see them. So, you know, the boat looked very small. I should imagine if you're in the Queen Mary in a storm, it still looks small and the sea's big and you've got to respect it and do what you think you can do but the boat's only a boat as we know we've lost that many of them not knowing what's happened but it's usually the sea that's took them you're there but you're not earning because all you can do I presume is more to slowly head to wind to try to ride it out you've got to do yeah I've seen us in the Chrysilla which was a big freezer trawler take 24 hours to get from the Isle of Man to Fleetwood because we got halfway across and we got this southwest severe storm and we just had to dodge head to wind for 18 hours because we don't turn around and go the other way. That's when it's, the ship's always more vulnerable down the wind than it is head to wind. So that's what we had to do, just dodge it out. That's all part and parcel of the job. As you've said, you had the relative comfort of working down below, but you must have also seen what it was like up on top. So what was life like, even on such a modern trawler, for men doing the actual fishing? You get people saying miners had the worst job in the world and all the rest of it. And I don't dispute that a miner's job is a dangerous and a horrible and a dirty job. But a decky's job, ooh, how they got them men to do that, I don't know. And then there's also, on the steam trawlers, there was the firemen. And all they used to do was shovel coal into a fire for six hours and go on six hours sleep and six hours doing it again 12 hours a day shoveling coal into the and it'd be pitching and tossing and no it's unbelievable that they could get firemen and deckies to do the jobs as far as i was concerned i used to think to myself i'm glad i'm down here out of the road but like i say on the steamships if i'd have been in steamships i'd have had to do the same but I was lucky, I was one of the lucky ones where you didn't have to go pulling ashes up. And they had to pull ashes up and throw them over the side, go on the deck, and in a white T-shirt, you know, and things like that, freezing cold weather. No, it's unbelievable until you've seen it. It's uh, hard to explain, but you can't understand how people did it. But, I mean, it's just, it was just what they were brought up to do, more or less. 
What must have preceded then if he had serious accidents or illness midway through a trip? If you had accidents and everything, well, it just depended on what sort of an accident. You know, if it was a serious accident, well, you'd, you'd have to cry for help, and if you could, get help, or go take them into harbour, and usually, if you were away from anybody, well, it was just a case of hard luck. We, we've had to take people in to Norway, places like that, but we've had to steam 30-odd hours to get them in, if they're hurt. We can only do what we can do, we're not doctors, but we can help them if you the skippers had morphine and things like that to inject them with it because you get some real nasty injuries for instance a walk party this is one of the walk jobs but it wasn't really gunboat it was because we come fast on the bomb and it was a stern dragger the chains what was holding the doors up they swung round and it really near scalp one of the lads all the back of his scalp was up and but another one his hand nearly took his thumb off we was in touch with the doctor, and he said, just keep him awake, don't let him go to sleep, and, and, and holding his scalp up, more or less. So, and I think it took us quite about ten hours or something to get to Akareri to get him in. But we had, the job was keeping him awake, you know, that was the worst thing. It's just unlucky if you get hurt and you get seriously hurt. All the other lads can do is just try and help. But with the Cod War at that time in full swing... What kind of reception could he expect if he sailed into an Icelandic port? We weren't really allowed to go in. I mean, when we went in with that man, the doctors and that came aboard, and when they looked at them, they said, right, get, get them ashore, they've got to go ashore. But like I say, we, the, the ship itself, with it being Akareri, it's right up at the north top end of Iceland, and uh, there was no government people there or anything, so we were able to drop these two off send for two more to Fleetwood and sneak off out and hide in the fjord till the other ones come. Otherwise we'd have probably got arrested if the coast guards had seen us. But we wasn't supposed to go in unless it was a dire emergency. And well, the Icelandic, given the due there, they did say bring them in when we told them what had happened. Give us now, if you will, a bit of the history behind the various Cod Wars. It was started off at four mile, which, like I say, it wasn't really a war then, it was just a... Uh, People were thinking it was funny, horse piping and throwing cod, and then they were rigging nets up one side of the boat, because them old boats that used to work ice, and they only ever worked one side. Well, the patrol vessels used to come always on the port side, because they're not going to go and try and get mangled up with the warps, which was on the starboard sides where we fished from. Anyway, we ended up rigging nets up, you know, and things like that. It was all a bit of a joke, but we like to say the playing field was level then, because they could go, we could go as fast as what the patrol vessels can. And then they started using spotter planes. But once the Eager came round, she was the first one they built. Big gunboat. Some big as far as the Navy's concerned. And she was fast. So they, they'd shifted the goalposts. That's when they started with the, all the intricate ways of chopping and chasing and God knows what. At the end of the day, we just, you know, we, we just couldn't catch a trip of fish, so it was a waste of time going there eventually. A case then of gradually wearing you down. Well, they won. <laughs> yeah, they won. And they went flying around playing. The, like, yeah, I can only remember that. The two gunboats come passing us, one on either side. And they were flying flags and singing, Loudailers going, singing victory songs in Icelandic. Our government just said, get yourselves out of there. And that was it, we was brought out. 
I think it was Mr Hattersley that brought us out. But what about the time in between, from the point when they brought in the first exclusion zone which constantly got extended ever further out to sea, to the time when you've just mentioned, when for reasons we'll come to later, our government in essence capitulated? Yeah, going back to the first of the Codwars, I can remember the very first one because I was a pleasure tripper. After the limits were changed from 4 miles to 12 miles, that's when I first started fishing down there. I was on 12 mile limits, but the gunboats then was modern gunboats with guns on. They wasn't throwing cod at each other. These boats were quite capable of sinking any trawler. So this is when it started to get serious. That would be in the 60s, early 60s. And uh, then they came out with this different methods of stopping us fishing. And one of the first methods, of course, would be the paravane, which is a hook on the end of a cable, and then he's just run right up behind the ship at full speed and drop down this paravane, and that would grab all of the ship's warps and just part them like cotton. The worst thing about that was a, a recoiling cable coming across the deck could take a few men's heads off, legs off, or whatever, you know, it was a very dangerous manoeuvre. Of course, the trawler skippers aren't thick, so they decided to plan their own methods of stopping them doing this. So what we was doing, it was stopping us fishing, but one ship was protecting the other ship. One ship would be behind the one that was actually trawling to stop him coming across the stern of you with his hook and parting your walk. So that was one defence. But he soon got round that. With him being such a powerful ship, he'd go around the front of you then and come shoot his paravane right from front to back. So you couldn't have a ship stood at the front, the should stood at the back, and one at each side. So then that method went down the drain line. But like I say, it did work for a certain length of time. After that, we was all put into zones, more or less fishing in zones. Of course, the Icelandic Coast Guard people was the ones that allotted the zones to us. Our government just seemed to stand back and let them do what the hell they wanted to do. But then, so like I said, the zones that they give to us, obviously, would be the ones where there was worse fishing. So when we were fishing these zones going down to, you know, it wasn't economical, it was, that would have put us out of business anyway, eventually. So this is when the trawler skippers started to take no notice of the loans. And then it got worse. There was incidents all over the place. And the Navy then was put down to protect us. But only if we was fishing in the zones. We had to be in the zones for protection. And then the next thing that happened was they went from 12 to 50 mile limits. Which all, all the time it was just making fishing worse and worse and worse, you know, we, Fifty mile off, there wasn't very good fishing. I mean, we were fishing twelve mile off. We were good place fishing, and that when you was on the west coast of Iceland. But when you start fifty miles, you're losing half the continental shelf of Iceland, which decreases the fishing as well. Because most of these fishes are bottom feeding fish and things like that. And if there's no bottom for them to feed, they don't go there. They go to where there is a bottom. Incidents and accidents started to get worse and worse. And then, from what I can gather, there was a change of government in Iceland. And this government was even more strict on the limits, and they banged it out to 200 mile. Well, now, 200 mile was just the type of trawler that we had. 
at the time, putting them out of business nearly. Nowadays, you've got the modern trolls with the pelagic trolls and the purse scene net trolls, but you couldn't have used them on them trawlers. You know, we had to then rebuild the trawlers, if you will. But that was the Cod War. The last trip I was down there before the Cod War was over, the gunboats was on parade around us all and flying flags and buntings and playing loud music. They'd won, and they had, because we got a message from our government, all ships leave Iceland. And we was just about halfway through a trip, so we had to leave Iceland and steam all the way to Norway, which took us two or three days. And uh, that was the end of my Iceland experience. I've never been back there, and neither has anybody else from Fleetwood, I don't think, because we were just not allowed to go there. Can you now fill in a bit more of the detail regarding some of the actual incidents themselves? I can tell you one manoeuvre after the harassment that the trawler skippers had had. I mean, they're not silly men, they're quite clever men. And the Hulst and Grimsby trawlers, plus a couple of Fleetwood trawlers, all got together ashore and devised a code. Because what had happened, the gunboat had started to get dirty tactics. It was reported from an aircraft where all the ships were fishing. And he would creep in at night when it was dark with trawler lights on, same as if there's 50 trawlers fishing an area. Nobody seemed to notice when one left and one came, like, you know, because you're too busy fishing. And he'd sneak in with trawler lights showing. And he'd get right in the middle of the fleet of trawlers and out would come the paravane, on would come with lights. He'd get about 10 of you right away. So then he'd steam off and chase but what these skippers had done, they devised a, a, a way of finding, watching this, and they got clever, and they formed, when they got on the ground, a circle. Where they was fishing, they formed themselves in a circle. And then they had this code, so that the, the one would say to the, the other, is that you, more or less, to the left of me? And if you never got an answer right, because they'd do it in code, you see, if you never got an answer right away, they knew it was either the Eager, the Odin, or one, and then they'd form a circle round him. And then, all of a sudden, they'd just all close in. They, they wasn't actually fishing. All he was doing was towing a bobbin behind them in the water, which made it look as if they was fishing. And then all full speed, and this was... It was an incident that I don't think was ever reported, but they all closed in on it, and one of them... When you've got a 360-degree circle thing coming at one thing, one of them is going to clobber him. And they did. They hit the acre on the bow. And uh, we heard a couple of the, their crew was injured in the collision, but they didn't sink him. Uh, but they damaged, the, I think it was the Everton, got his bow damaged. And uh, that was that little tactic. <laughs> but so... They were definitely intent on sinking that ship, though. They'd have risked themselves and everything else, and they would have rammed that gunboat if they got the chance. But that tactic fell through as well. And after that, uh, like I say, it came to the end. But it, there was a lot of danger, a lot of very dangerous manoeuvres. There was talk. I don't. I can't. I can't really say because I never actually seen this happen. But there was talk of some of the skippers taking double-barrel shotguns to see with them firing at them. I could, I could imagine that did happen, but uh, I didn't have no proof of that. But I have proof of the manoeuvre that they did there. And then there was another time when the man of the Royal Navy was there. 
But one ship, I forget what ship it was, a Grimsby trawler had really gone over the top because the limit was 200 mile and he had gone into about 15 mile off the land and decided to chief him. <laughs> and the, the, they reckon the gunboat came after him and was started to fire live shells. And the HMS Polisser, I think it was, one of the naval boats, decided if you fire any, any live ammunition at that ship, we'll sink you. And he went in, flying in after him. He wasn't supposed to go in 50 miles, but he chased the gunboat back to Reykjavik. But the only thing was, next morning, he was dragged back to Chatham. The reason that our government gave him was that he was too aggressive, and that was that. So that's the sort of situation it was. It was a no-win thing for the trawler skippers. I mean, they, they had to go down there and catch fish. If they didn't catch fish, they come back and they got the sack because they'd not caught no fish. And it was the same for all the crews. We came back, we had no money. And that was uh, the Icelandic's one because walkers. From what I can gather now, we're buying fish off Iceland. But now, with hindsight, do you still blame the Icelanders for wanting the same type of 200 mile limit which we in Britain operate today? At the beginning of the time, yes, because there was no Icelandics. Fish were we fished. Their idea of fishing was to get themselves you know, the Icelandic lads was to buy the sell a boat like they do here, small boat, and just go out in the day, in the morning, back at night, land, and be, you know, that sort of fishing, like what we never did. They couldn't fish. The big trawlers from Iceland, they uh, had problems fishing where the Fleetwood people and the Grimsby people fished, because it was that rougher ground that they devised trawls with these 22-inch iron bobbins. Well, the Icelandics hadn't uh, got around to that idea then, and they was going there and losing all the gear and steaming to fish at Greenland. They was going over to Greenland and fishing there. So really, it was their fish in a way, but I mean, to catch it, it's nobody's fishing till it's caught. It's the same as if there was two fishing around England. I would say, oh, hell no, this is our fish, like, you know, get them out of it, which they probably, they did eventually. But now, I, I don't know what goes on around there now, but... Something must go on round there because they're selling us, bringing cargo boats over full of containers full of fish. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to keep the fishing industries viable, I don't think, now, if it wasn't for that, that and fur or. From experience, I know that Iceland is a harsh, barren place, so the argument was that their territorial waters was the only natural resource available to them, leaving them with little other choice. Well, yes, I can, I can go along with that, but I mean, also... But one of the things that I think had a lot to do with them wanting us out and everything else, although it really didn't affect us trawling, but there was the big NATO base at Keflavik. Now, there used to be these big 10-engine jobs coming in. Every 20 minutes or so, you'd see one of them landing and one going up. So I think, actually, that had a little bit of a to-do with keeping us away from Iceland. The fact that uh, the Americans were there and the Russians would log ahead with each other. Somebody might drop a bomb on Iceland. You don't know what their mind was. They might have been thinking on that line, but like I say, it had nothing to do with us fishermen. The NATO base was actually the Icelandic authorities' trump card. They knew very well its strategic importance during the Cold War for keeping tabs on the Soviet Navy, and therefore threatened to close it if the UK didn't order its trawlers out, which under pressure from the Americans is what we actually did. Yeah, yeah, that has. That's what I heard. It, well, it was on the television, you know, that, uh, I don't know what they would call them, that would be the boss of the NATO base. From what we heard, they'd offered to give Reykjavik 
television install it but because Keflavik was a city an American city had a big fence right around it and non, nobody was in there only the Americans you got Frank Sinatra's and that entertainer and unbeknown to anybody else like you know but they offered to give the Icelandics this that and the other but they just couldn't accept it because I believe it was a communist government that got elected anyway there so that probably had something to do with it. I've actually been over to Iceland a couple of times rod and line fishing and the first time I went I stayed at a small town called Akranes where the cutting gear used by the gunboats was actually made. What's more I even managed to track down one of the cutters and get a photograph taken of me holding it. I couldn't actually believe how small it was I mean I could easily hold it in one hand but obviously it was very effective just the same. Have you really? Uh, yeah. It's just like a U-shaped like a plough, wasn't it? It reminded me of a small squashed-up fisherman-style anchor with blades on the insides of each tapering V, feeding the warp down across the blades until it finally sliced them through. And it did. It did you know, one tug and it was bang, bang, both warps. And they went with a bang as well. And with them, another expensive net. Oh, I can give you a for instance with us. In the uh, Moretta, we was down there, and this is another tactic of the gunboat. He would spot ball one ship and concentrate on that ship. And we was spot ball this time in the Moretta. And Dave Aki was skipper, and every time we shot or tried to shoot, or did it, he'd be there. And we ended up, we had no warp aboard the winch. We had uh, no nets left, no nothing. We had to come back to Fleetwood. We came back to Fleetwood, and we had no fish neither and no gear. It just harassed us that much that we couldn't fish. And that was, we, we ended up 26 day trip and no fish. I mean, you go to the patrol owner saying we're very sorry, but we've no, they weren't interested really. I was lucky because I was chief engineer. I went home with three pound for 26 days. The deckies on the ship was going home owing the firm 40s and 50 pounds which was a lot of money because what happened to me with the way we got paid they used to take your wages give them to your wife out of your poundage but if you got no poundage there's a firm that's dead so you owe the firm money and some of the other deckies on that ship that trip owed Marses 50 pounds each Did you personally experience any incidents where the warps came whiplashing back into the boat? Not that I know of, no, not to, not seriously injured everybody. They give people quite a fright, like, you know, with them flying back. Well, I don't know of any instances where they actually did hurt anybody, you know, but it's, it's always the uh, the chances there they could take their legs off or take their head off or anything with a flying two-inch rope recoiling on board the ship. Uh, it, was, it was a dangerous manoeuvre, very dangerous. And then the, the ramming part of it, that uh, was the Navy's job. That's what they ended up doing, chasing the gunboats and ramming them. When the gunboats was harassing it, the Navy had the upper hand. We, we couldn't, you see, because the gunboats was, could do 20, 30 knots, where the Navy could do 30, 40 knots. Some of those, where we was only 10, 15 knots, uh, full fleet. You know. So the, the Navy did uh, get a bit violent with them at times. And uh, there was a few things on television of the Navy ramming the gunboats or colour colliding with them, you know. 
There was damage done to the boats, obviously. You don't bang ships together in the sea and not get damaged, but I don't think there was any real serious injuries happening to anybody, luckily. Were there ever any shots fired from either side's big guns? I don't think so, no. No, I wouldn't have it, no. But they reckoned that, they, like I said, this guy that had gone right inside, they reckoned that the gunboat was either firing blanks or... When Paul said he, when he said he could see that with his man the gun on the bow, <laughs> now whether he was firing blanks or what, I don't know, but he just warned them. He said, if you fire another shot, we'll sink you. And with European fish stocks these days in crisis due to poor quarters and controls on foreign vessels, do you think the Icelanders may have had a point, and that we perhaps should also be doing the same? Well, you know, I mean, now you would think the Morecambe Bay area is not being fished by anything like, well, we don't know of anything like it. There might be other French and other ships doing it, but around the, the area around here, Morecambe Bay, there's no, I mean, there used to be 30 and 40 prawners and smacks and that fishing out of Fleetwood. And they all used to come in with trips to fish. They, you know, there was only fishing in Morecambe Bay areas, but now you go in Morecambe Bay and... So why are fish stocks still struggling if there are less boats out there fishing for them? This is the thing that I can't understand. I would have thought when, they all, when all the ships and everything left Fleetwood and Fleetwood was shut down as far as it being a fishing port and all the promos disappeared from the Jubilee Quay, I thought, ooh, lovely, Rod and Linus are going to have a heyday. But it's just gone the opposite way. And once over, anybody will tell you that's done angling, you could go out there and you'd get, you could fill your boots up with whiting and stuff like that. But now, whiting... It's more or less extinct, except for little teeny ones. It might be that other species are eating them when they're small, I don't know. It might be one of them sort of things, you because know, we, what we do, us crazy anglers, is uh, if there's a shortage of fish and everything, we, we usually gut them and find out what they're eating. A lot of these dogfish that are around here are full of small whiting, so that's they've got the blame. We've blamed the dogfish because they're the better they the bay is alive with dogfish. We used to call them nurses. But uh, the, 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 on the piers, off the beach and everywhere, off the boats, they're a bloody nuisance. You, can't, you know, you can't catch anything else but them. Years ago, there used to be seasonal cod around January or February. There was always somebody coming in with a big 20-odd pounder from, you know, well, obviously, if they'd be 20-odd pounder, they must be coming down there to spawn. But just these last few years, that's, I don't think there's been a double-thicker cod caught round these areas. So after the boats had made the final run up to Iceland, what effect did this have on Fleetwood as a fishing port? The firm I was with, Mars, is one of the top companies. Boston never did it. But Mars is side per fishing, like what the Spaniards have been doing round Kilders and them areas and local home water things. Now, per fishing... You, you are talking about expensive trolls then. Two ships pull one troll. And, uh, well, it, you know, it just didn't prove a success, really. But, but the government uh, was giving the troller owners expenses to do this, to see, look for other fish. With Iceland gone, all of a sudden there would be a lot of very expensive deep-water capability trawlers which needed to find alternative ways of earning the keep. I can remember when I first started going to sea, we was only allowed to go to Iceland two trips a year, in the type of ships we was in. 
it all to do with the laying the keel down and getting them built and getting a grant that was all part of the deal so these ships were purpose built for fishing up in Muckleflugger, Kilders, all them areas deep water fishing, hake fishing like I say there was no reason for us to go to Iceland but then when they started giving them two trips a year to go down to Iceland, these boats and when they was going down there they was coming back and making good money so consequently they were they was making more money there and then the government eventually took this clause off where they could only have two trips and they said they could go and that was like the beginning of the end for the cod workers either they going down there they made a lot of money the 1960s was like the boom year like I've got a graph in the museum and it's hundredweights of fish landed obviously the more the hundredweights of fish landed the more money they make so the 60s is like this then all of a sudden it goes down one step and that's when the Cod Wars had ended, then then down another, and then all the trawlers then started going on oil standbys because the oil industry was booming. The ships that wasn't doing any good fishing was stuck on standby jobs around the oil rigs, just there as safety vessels more or less. And what about the effect on Fleetwood as a town, with so many people reliant in the various ways on the fishing industry's success or failure? You know, the fishing industry... In Fleetwood was one of, or the main industry. And like I said, as the landings slumped, they didn't need lumpers, they didn't need fishermen, and all the fishermen stopped fishing and went on the boats that were doing the standby rigs. Myself personally, I would never do that job. Standby, just stuck there bobbing and up and down outside an oil rig in case it blows up. So gradually Fleetwood has been on a slippery slope for quite a few of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and right down to this present day, when now I feel sorry for the young lads that are just leaving school and that, because I don't know what they're going to do around this area. If I remember right, there was a brief glimmer of hope at one stage which quickly seemed to dim, as a couple of the boats were sent out to fish the continental slope off the southwest coast of Ireland, looking for new species to replace the Icelandic cod. Well, at the end of the... Cod Wars, when we was pushed out of Iceland and pushed out every other country, even the Canadians, where we used to salvage a living down on the Grand Banks, the Grand Banks were shut by the Canadians completely, and they still are shut. This is 30-odd years ago since they shut them, but, I mean, I, I can understand them doing that because on the season for the cod, around the Grand Banks, there was ships of every nation there. There was Portuguese, French, Germans, Russians, us, you name it, they were fishing down there. So the Canadian government, at the end of the day, must have said, well, that's it, finished. And I believe now they send out two or three ships a year to test them, and the cod has never, ever gone back there. Anyway, like I say, in the time that followed there in Fleetwood, we were desperate for where to fish. They'd tried the pearl fishing experiment and that hadn't really paid off. So the only other thing now is that the owner said, well, we would try deep water fishing. That meant we could fish with our ships deep water, but just more or less touching the limit. Just to fish in a hundred fathom of water, you've got to have a thousand fathom of warp on your winch. Because it don't go straight down, it trails behind you. So this is, they, they tried this out on various things and 
the Whitefish Authority then decided that they'd charter because trawler owners wasn't willing to risk, as far as I can gather, and I, I can't say as I blame them, they wasn't willing to risk the ships and the gear, the costs would, would have been, and it was a government thing that dragged us out of Iceland, so I think the government must have felt guilty and said, well, we will charter a few trawlers to do this. And out of Fleetwood, we got the, I think they did it, a ship out of Aberdeen and a ship out of Grimsby and a ship out of Hull, more or less went round the ports to try this experimental fishing. And our ship was one of the modern trawlers, one of Marty's modern ships, the Looneeder. And that was under skipper Bill Reader, who's a pal of mine. Bill said, well, OK, well, to go in this deep water, we're going to have to go way off the fishing grounds, way out to the west, which they did. And they fished, they did it a normal type trip, and they caught a normal type amount. I think he caught about two or three hundred kit of fish, which is normal for home water fishing at that time. Anyway, they brought in the samples of Granada, there was black scabbard, blue whiting, and various other things that people had never even seen. They didn't know there were like unknown varieties except the, the experts came with the White Fish Authority and recognised what they were. And there are the, uh, one of the fish merchants from Finder's Fish said, well, we'll advertise it to the public to come down to the fish house. We'll cook some of this fish and see what the housewives and that think of it all. So out of the trip, there was Granada's Black Scabbard, Blue Whiting and various others. It was all just cooked in different ways. There were some boiled, some fried, some battered, and the public went down. And then I can remember the time, there was quite a good showing of people went down there. Anyway, they had the fish and they tasted it, and then they had the fish, what, the, what, what, how it would look on a fishmonger's slab. And unfortunately, for the black scabbard and the others, you know, they didn't sell with the housewife. Now that's who buys the fishes, the housewife, so at the end of the day the whole experiment took a back seat and disappeared into the distance like everything else. The Whitefish Authority, you can't blame them, they tried. The skipper, he went and tried and brought them in, but it's just like anything else, it's what you're used to eating I suppose, and you can't just turn people around. Uh, anyway, it's... Uh, it died to death eventually, which unfortunately, and like the rest of the fishing industry, the deterioration started from then. I actually remember the trip being big news on the TV at the time, and the people who tried eating the fish also being interviewed, one of which said it tasted like rhubarb and custard. <laughs> I can imagine that would be one of the unknown species, more or less. Yeah, there was some queer-looking things, honestly. All head and no tail. Well, I mean, that must be a relation of the monkfish, because they're all head and no tail, but the tail's beautiful. It didn't take off, and we never heard no more about it, but the Whitefish Authority seemed to drop interest in it, and that was it. So what's the future for deep and distant water fishing from UK ports? Well, like I say, this purse seam netting and this new fangled trawlers, they're not trawlers now, they're fishing machines. You can't call them trawlers because they've got pelagic trawls, they've got bottom fishing trawls 
and they've got these purse seam nets. So actually, the fish haven't got a chance. So at the end of the day, we're going to modify ourselves out of business. They're going to build these super ships, which they have built, and they're just going to have no fish to catch. Cause gonna, they're, they're all saying there's more fish in the sea than they ever take out. I don't think that's true now. I honestly don't. They said that you once over you could walk across the, to, to Norway and places like that on the top of Cod's Heads, but not anymore you can't. Not anymore. Which suggests that with hindsight, the Icelanders were probably right. Exactly, I do. I've got to agree that, they, that yeah, you've got to conserve. I do agree, and like I said, I think we'll end up with any cod you can buy or any fish you can buy that's of, of what you remember, it'll be coming from fish farms. Which to some extent it already is, particularly bass, which the supermarkets can sell under the minimum size limit set for wild fish, which some unscrupulous so-called anglers are using as a loophole to take immature undersized fish. Wouldn't you think that with the lessons of the past are drawn, some of which we've touched on here, people would actually start looking beyond the short term? But they don't. My thanks then to Les Hall for sharing with us his memories of the decline of the distant water trawling fleet and its main west coast base at Fleetwood in Lancashire.